This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today we'll be discussing ESG and impact investing, and we're lucky to have three very thoughtful practitioners with us. Hugh Lawson helps lead Goldman Sachs Asset Management's client business and oversees both institutional client strategy and the division's ESG efforts. Scott Brown is the CEO and managing partner of New Energy Capital, and Elizabeth McGovern is the program director for impact investing at the McKnight Foundation. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Hugh, your job here at the firm includes oversight of our environmental, social, and governance investing efforts in our asset management division, that's ESG for short, and also called responsible or sustainable investing. How is ESG investing different from, quote-unquote, traditional investing, and what kinds of asset classes are open to an investor utilizing this ESG framework? I'd frame it as really there are three approaches. There's an approach that focuses on alignment. That's where an investor asks, is there a way to have a greater degree of synchronicity between their values and objectives and what's represented in their portfolio? The second way is integration. That's where a lens around ESG issues is used to evaluate the forward prospects of usually a corporate issuer of debt or equity. It's a lens as a portfolio manager thinks about advantageous prospects for a company. And then the third dimension is impact. That's generally associated with private markets where the proximity of the capital that you're providing to the corporate enterprise is fairly close, and you're seeking a financial return, but a measurable impact. Those are the three ways I would say ESG and impact investing positions itself, but in many ways, I would highlight the similarities, that ESG and impact investing is investing, but it's a particular lens and frame in those three ways. So it used to be that as an asset manager, you'd just screen out companies that didn't align with your values. How's the methodology changed over the last decade or so? It's a good question, and I would say things have progressed dramatically. Alignment is the more modern version of screening in many ways. So an investor may say there are certain segments of the economy that it would either like to not have exposure to or would like to have reduced exposure to. At the same time, from a governance point of view, they may be evaluating their overall performance and thinking about their aggregate risk level in their portfolio with a market cap index in sight. And so the question is, the degree of difference that the investor will find acceptable from that starting point. And so you can use quantitative techniques to essentially figure out degrees of alignment per unit of difference. So the term of art is tracking error, but I'm just going to describe that as degree of difference. In the early incarnations, people were just excluding securities. Here, what we're doing is we're using mathematical and quantitative techniques to think about the degree of difference that is both tolerable and desirable, and we can tailor that to the investor's preferences. So, Elizabeth, as the director of impact investing for the McKnight Foundation, you're responsible for the foundation's $200 million commitment to ESG investments. Walk us through some of the ways McKnight has focused that impact investing, and why did McKnight end up in this space? Well, the McKnight Foundation assets are from the first CEO of the 3M Corporation, William McKnight. And so I think the reason the foundation went in that direction is we have a history of being comfortable with innovation and trying things that may be unexplored. And so when the family of the foundation asked themselves, 
you know, we give away 5% of our assets every year in the form of grants, but we're trying to address problems that are so complicated, like climate change or affordable housing, that are really very tied up with the economy. Is there a way that we can get more from our endowment? And so what they decided to do was take 10% of the $2 billion, $200 million, and seek investments that were highly aligned with the types of impacts that our grants are seeking. What's been most interesting is in that process of seeking really interesting and innovative funds and investments, we're finding other opportunities throughout the $2 billion to do things to get that kind of alignment that you were mentioning between the bigger endowment and the values and goals of the foundation. So has the thinking changed over time? You started off just 10%, but mm-hmm. has it started to permeate the entire $2 billion? Today, one out of every $4 in the McKnight Endowment has some form of alignment with our mission. So in the fixed income portfolio, that means that we've sold coal bonds. We have a $100 million carbon efficiency strategy, what used to be a plain index tracking fund, which was very intense in terms of the amount of carbon it was exposed to. We now overweight towards companies that produce greenhouse gases efficiently per dollar of sales, and we underweight, so tilt away from companies that are inefficient producers. So it really is finding its way out through the portfolio and through our due diligence processes with fund managers. Scott, you've had a long career dating back to the 1980s where you've been involved in the solar sector. How did you get interested in investing in the space, and how's the solar space changed over time? Back in the 80s, I was involved primarily in the manufacturing side, developing new technologies for production of solar as well as manufacturing systems. We didn't start investing until 2001. And in 2001, there were very, very small installations in the U.S. It was not really an investable sector. The cost of solar production at that point meant that you could produce electricity at costs around 25 to 30 cents a kilowatt hour. Now you can produce electricity from solar at a cost of sub-4 cents a kilowatt hour. So the dramatic shift in cost between 2001 and 2017 has made this a sector that is now competitive with other forms of electricity generation. The result of that has been an explosion of investment worldwide, with about $60 billion invested annually worldwide, about $25 billion invested in the U.S. annually over the last two years. And we expect that $25 billion annual investment period to continue for at least the next 10 years. So obviously government plays a role in helping a sector like that take off. And here in the United States, the new administration's pursued a slightly different tack when it comes to regulations more broadly. In an environment, particularly, the differences are pretty stark. They've pulled out of the Climate Accord, the Paris Accord. You've written a piece saying that clean energy remains attractive without policy support from the federal government. Why do you think that is? Has it reached that point where the government can step back and the industry will take care of itself? There are three reasons. And certainly what's going on at the federal level is not friendly to renewables, but it's not overly damaging either. The investment tax credits are locked into place for solar until 2022. We think they're on a track to gradually decline over that period of time. They will drop from 30% to 10% over that period, but we expect the cost of solar to drop more than that 20% level over that period as well. So there are three things that are driving that are immune essentially to federal changes. One is that constant decline in, in the fundamental economics or improvement in the fundamental economics. The second fact is that most 
energy policy in the country, particularly for the electric industry, is formed at the state level. And states remain very supportive, as the public does, of, of renewable energy investing. And so states have increased their renewable portfolio requirements since Trump was elected. In 2016 and 17, nine states increased their renewable mandates and no states decreased them. 31 states have improved their incentives for renewables over the last year and a half. And so we continue to see state-level improvements in the environment. The second is corporate buyers are increasing their purchases of renewable energy. And this year, we're on track to double the level of corporate power purchase agreements of the 2016 level. And it's running at about $3 billion a year of corporate purchases, and we expect that to continue to increase. And then third is the public remains strongly supportive. A recent Pew poll that came out this summer shows that 65% of Americans favor increased use of renewables, only 25% favor increased use of fossil fuels. And so we think the political support, despite what happens in Washington, continues to be favorable for renewables. We have one of those power purchase agreements here, and it's helped build some capacity in Pennsylvania. What effect do you think the growing sustainable investor class will have on companies in the way companies manage their day-to-day operations. Talk about any of the trends you're seeing that show you that ESG and sustainable investing frameworks are influencing management. I would say that the trend really is twofold. So you have, on the one hand, the trend toward passive investing, which has gotten a little bit of a negative rap for being somewhat disengaged. And I think many passive investors who implement that are rectifying that. On the other hand, you have active managers who are increasingly using ESG metrics and performance as a way to understand the long-term planning of corporate managements. So it's a very interesting lens to talk about issues around supply chain, recruitment and retention and labor force management, taking advantage of opportunities that the shifting mix of energy and avoiding the pitfalls if you don't do that. And so what we're finding in our own active equity teams and fixed income teams is that increasingly they're using ESG questions as a way to understand corporate strategy. And so our experience is, and it's a subtle shift, but I do think managements themselves are thinking hard about these issues. In addition, an additional driver of focus on this is the workforces at these companies. We see it here at Goldman Sachs, particularly younger workers want to know what their employer strategy is around these issues are. And so you're having a two-pronged degree of focus for management there. So, Scott and Elizabeth, I'd love to hear what success looks like for you in terms of the investments you make. Do you start with the impact metrics or do you start with financial metrics? Well, we're definitely interested in the financial performance of our investments. Where we're not looking for a return is when we make grants. That's money that goes to the nonprofit sector and we expect it to be used and never returned. Our endowment is most definitely to continue to grow the health and the well-being of the institution so we can keep making grants. So we think that some of the themes that are out there in this space, like the renewable energy theme, like using water efficiently, there are so many different ways that we see these as indicators that this is a company that's managing to the future with a long-term point of view and a long-term vision. Those are the kinds of companies that we want to be invested in. We're very long-term investors, so those kinds of strategic questions matter to us. It shows whether a company can manage its its impacts, whether they're financial or on the manufacturing side or the like. Absolutely. How about you, Scott? 
We're in the fortunate position, and we look at things a little bit differently from Elizabeth. We focus only on renewable energy investing, and so we assume that we are going to have a positive greenhouse gas offset impact in every investment that we do. We measure that. We write a report on it every year. And we're proud of that impact, but we focus, when we make our investment decisions, purely on returns. And we are achieving higher than average for private equity returns in our funds, and we expect to continue that, but that's with a laser-like focus on doing well for our investors. But every single investment we make has a positive impact on the environment. And the McKnight Foundation is a very happy investor in new energy capital. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hugh, in your experience working with clients in this space, how do they look at the impact versus financial returns? I think the set of presumptions among most of our client base has has shifted significantly in the past few years. So I think the challenge that they give to us is they say, why should I have any sacrifice of financial return to get the impact that I want? You need to explain to me why there needs to be a trade-off if there is, and clearly we don't think there needs to be a trade-off. What is true is that, and this is true of conventional investing in all its forms, Every idea that you have isn't always investable at the given moment in time. And even if it is investable, it may or may not be attractive at a given moment in time. And so I think investors are viewing this more as a process that over time, portfolios will migrate into segments that they find particularly appealing from an impact or ESG point of view, but they recognize it as a multi-year process. Currently, the very best-performing investment in the entire McKnight Endowment is one of our impact investments. So that was an example of actually something that came in through the impact investing door, and we're actually moving it into the main body of the endowment at a much higher allocation because it has performed so well for us. Scott, have you seen shifts in the way investors in your fund look at the space? Well, there's an increasing recognition, I think, that investors don't have to sacrifice returns for impact. And I think that has taken a while to demonstrate year over year in that kind of experience. But I think there's another shift in that investors are recognizing that they face higher risks if they remain exposed to high carbon intensity industries. It used to be that they could believe they could ignore the potential risk associated with the cost of carbon. I think most people now recognize, whether it's in this administration or the next or the one after, that at some point there's going to be a social cost of carbon imposed on them, and that poses a financial risk that investors who are looking over the longer term are now recognizing. Hugh, the last time you were on the podcast more than two years ago, Goldman Sachs Asset Management, or GSAM, had just acquired Imprint Capital, an impact investing advisor with $550 million of assets. Today, GSAM oversees $10.5 billion in explicit ESG and impact investing assets. What's behind this massive growth? I think it's both an increase in interest in the space among institutions as well as wealthy individuals. But it also is our ability to implement. So we've made quite a bit of investment in being able to deliver rigorous ESG strategies in municipal bonds, investment-grade credit, equities, as well as private equity and private credit on both a proprietary and open architecture basis. So we've seen interest and ability to do this across asset classes. And I would say, again, what has shifted among clients is maybe five years ago, Folks were interested in a small segment of their portfolio as sort of experimental capital. Usually equity capital? Usually equity capital could be private equity capital, but it was a small carve-out. Now they're saying, is there a way to shift all of my asset classes to some degree 
in the direction that I want. And we now have broad implementation options across the spectrum, which I think accounts for the growth. So there's still a lot of debate around what impact investing means, and the industry seems caught up in nomenclature. How do you define it, Scott? We are focused purely on the environmental sector of impact investing, and we measure it through greenhouse gas offsets. We take a very deliberate approach and bring in outside consultants to help us develop that strategy and that accountability and publish a report every year. That's a very clear, measurable impact. But I think one of the things that we also try to do is to pioneer new investment strategies and find gaps in the market where we can unleash lower-cost capital once we demonstrate that it's an investable sector. And I think our real impact in the market is to demonstrate those sectors where we can capture a higher return early in that space when the rest of the market does not recognize that most of the risk has been driven out of it. But after demonstrating that, bring in lower cost capital and really accelerate the development of that sector. And that's where I think we've had the most impact. Elizabeth, how about you? How do you think about it? You start off with a very clear impact investing mandate, but now all of a sudden you're finding impact investing throughout the portfolio. We're actually more interested in what kind of strategies can we use as an institutional investor to leverage our endowment. So to leverage the fact that we are in the marketplace in a variety of ways. So sometimes that means we're the owner of capital and we select managers or products that have very direct impact, like Scott's Fund. But sometimes it means we're really attentive to how our fund managers are voting our proxies on our behalf because we are the owners of corporations. We're also really interested in how our service providers, so how Goldman Sachs and how others incorporate this strategy into their own business and their own approach. And then we have standing at the SEC, at the New York Stock Exchange as an investor. And there are a lot of places in which we may have something to say about how these social and environmental business risks are both measured and reported in these kinds of regulatory regimes. Yeah, Hugh, there's been a big effort, obviously, to try to standardize the kind of nomenclature in the space and to some extent the accounting in the space. How do you see that playing out over time? Well, I think there's much more to be done there. A couple of areas of research that are very interesting are, can we distill ESG factors in the academic sense of the term, meaning that the factor can identify advantage and have predictive power of outperformance or underperformance. And I would say there's a lot of quantitative work that we're doing with big data and artificial intelligence in our active equity businesses where we're seeing some very positive trends toward ESG factors as predictive. So I think that market will move. The standardization problem is as follows. The level of disclosure around these issues is uneven. The metrics are not prescribed. And one interesting question, and there's a number of initiatives to try to encourage sort of a bottoms-up standardization and greater degree of information, but one interesting question I have is will big data and artificial intelligence circumvent that? Can you do it from a top-down point of view where there's enough information in the public domain that you can have some predictive trends around industries or companies? And so I think that's a very exciting area of research that maybe the bottoms-up will become less urgent, but we'll have to see. Yeah, particularly if it produces predictable and outperformance, yeah. Because, I mean, this effort's been around for a while. Series, mm -hmm. going back a couple decades, has been trying to create some standardization by going company to company to company, but it's very hard without a, a cudgel from the regulator or the yeah. like. We're supportive of many of those efforts. We, in fact, for one of our largest institutional clients in the U.S., we use one of those organizations' data to build the portfolio. So I think it's encouraging that it's there, but there are some other efforts that I think 
with big data and artificial intelligence may be another avenue. Active managers obviously have a lot of options when it comes to screening their investments and focusing their investments in a certain space, whether it's solar or elsewhere. But passive investing is growing quickly. And how should we think about that space as it grows? How will impact investing manifest itself in the passive space? Well, I think there are a couple ways in we're already seeing it. There are passive and rules-based strategies that incorporate ESG factors into the portfolio construction. Those can be accessed by investors of all sizes. I would expect that there will be a trend toward more of that, and then there will ultimately be a shakeout. So you've seen a proliferation of these strategies that I think will continue. I think the most rigorous, well-thought-through ones will survive and others will fade away. But there will be plenty of choice for investors. Secondly, active management is also an exciting area. I think increasingly active managers, even though they may be trying to outperform a conventional benchmark, are using ESG as a lens to think about competitive advantage as well as risk of their corporates. And I would say going forward, we'll see more of that. What I would also say that's very important, though, is you still need to think about portfolio construction. So you've got the pieces. You have your U.S. equity piece, your international equity piece, your fixed income piece, and so forth. ESG is important in all of that, but portfolio construction of how the pieces work together remains important. So what's very key here is that ESG and impact is a method, but conventional portfolio strategies are still applicable. As industry veterans, as people who've lived and breathed this space for a while, where does the sector go? Where does this go from here, Scott? We're just at the beginning of inflection points that are driven by multiple factors. One is we're just about to achieve cost parity on an unsubsidized basis for solar in the U.S., and that is going to unleash a whole new wave of restructuring in the utility industry. We're developing storage technologies rapidly, and that's essential for expanding solar to be able to take advantage of other non-solar times of day. The electrification of the transport industry is going to shift massively the dynamics of electricity distribution and consumption in the U.S. I think the public is finally recognizing that the risks of ignoring climate change from an economic point of view are real, and that's going to continue to drive economic focus on the risks of climate change. And all four of those factors are interlaced but having a dramatic impact on investment opportunities, which will continue over the next 20 years. So, Elizabeth, how do you see the shape of how endowments invest, how foundations invest, universities invest, shifting as the trends that Scott described take hold. Right. Well, one of the inflection points that I'd add having to do with institutional assets is we are about to experience a massive wave of retirement from investment committees at foundations and endowments across the country. Our government and civil service is also experiencing that as we transition from the baby boomers. And presumably the new people will be younger. Presumably, we have Gen Xers and Millennials in the wings. And it's not to say that at the McKnight Foundation, some of our baby boomer board members are some of our toughest skeptics, but also some of our greatest supporters. But the decision makers around endowments and foundations are changing as a matter of demographics. And we may find that that really does have some unexpected impacts and open some really interesting doors to think differently about money. Hugh, do you have any thoughts on how the sector might look differently? Or will it be the sector? I would say that for active management, active strategies, my prediction is that ESG and impact assessment will be central to all active strategies. 
the degree to which ESG factors may be weighted in making security selection decisions will vary. But the questions will be asked because ultimately it's a source of advantage and it's a source of risk and active managers should understand it. Well, that's a great place to end. Hugh, Scott, Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Thanks very much. And thanks for listening to this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on October 10th. 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition, The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity. No part of this podcast may, without GSAM's prior written consent, be reproduced, redistributed, published, copied, or duplicated in any form by any means.